0: Anyone who preaches and teaches God's Word will readily admit how hard it is for our preaching and teaching to be faithful to the emphases of Scripture, to preach and teach the truths of God's Word in the same proportion that we find them in God's Word, to hold together various truths in Scripture that even seem to be in tension with one another at times. Let me give you an example here is really what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 11 but let me let me illustrate this for you the the issue any faithful teacher of scripture will have to point out God's hatred of sin that scripture tells us again and again that God will pour out wrath on sinners who never turn to him there is a terrifying judgment to come Scripture tells us that God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Much of Scripture really is terrifying. It really is frightening. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Scripture speaks of an eternal lake of fire. It speaks of casting both body and soul into hell. Psalm 5 says, God hates all evildoers and will restore, re- destroy those who speak lies. We actually sang Psalm 5 this morning. The metrical version we sang uh, put it, puts it this way. We just sang this a few minutes ago. Evildoers, thou dost hate. Liars, thou wilt bring to naught. God abhors the man who loves deed of blood or lying thought. That's why you need to sing psalms, because... No uninspired hymn writer is likely to write words like that, but we find them all over the place in the Psalter. You have psalms of cursing, where the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls down curses on God's enemies. Do not, I hate those who hate you, David says in Psalm 139. God is holy. God is judge. There is a hell, there is such a thing as divine wrath. The Bible is full of frightening images of judgment and they must be preached or the preacher isn't faithful. God will punish sin, that's clear. But on the other hand, there are passages that describe God's amazing love and mercy and compassion, God's amazing grace towards sinners Passage after passage of scripture describes this as well. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That's how God describes himself and reveals himself to Moses. God is love, John tells us. The Bible never says God is wrath. It does say God is love. God is full of compassion and steadfast love. God has revealed himself in Jesus. And Jesus says he is gentle and humble in heart. God delights to do good to his children. He delights to give us his gifts. Psalm 103 tells us he does not punish us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Uh, One of my favorite passages along these lines is Micah 7 that we read just a few minutes ago. Micah 7 says there's no other God like this who pardons iniquity. He tramples our transgressions under his feet. What a great picture. God stomping on your sins, crushing your sins under his feet. Micah says he casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I remember hearing one preacher talk about this. He said, when God casts your sins into the depths of the sea, he puts up a no fishing sign. That's it. He drowns your sins in the ocean of his grace. In fact, there are even passages in Scripture that describe God's act of judging or condemning sinners as his strange work, as though we were alien to God in some way. Isaiah 28 describes the Lord rising up to judge his enemies, but says this is his strange deed, this is an unusual work for him. Whereas God shows mercy to the repentant immediately, God is slow to anger. God does not have an itchy trigger finger when it comes to wrath. Mercy comes in an instant, but judgment comes only after God's considerable patience has run out. Whereas Scripture says that God delights to show mercy to His people, it says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Lamentations, Jeremiah the prophet is lamenting the terrible judgment God has brought on Jerusalem. But right in the middle of the book, at the beginning of chapter 3, we read this. The Lord will not cast us off forever. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion, for he does not afflict from his heart. When he afflicts us, it's not from his heart. When he afflicts his people. That same prophet, Jeremiah, in chapter 32 of the book that bears his name, records God saying this, I will rejoice to do my people good with all my heart and soul. So Jeremiah says, when the Lord afflicts us, that's not from his heart. But when he does good to us, that is with all his heart and soul. Now you may be wondering, how does all of this fit together? You've got these wrath passages and these race passages. These passages where God is this fierce and awesome judge. And you got these passages where God is abounding in love and compassion to his people. Is God schizophrenic? Sometimes his judgmental personality comes out. Sometimes his merciful personality comes out. And with God, you never really know what you're going to get. Is that what we're seeing here? Is God internally conflicted? Is he in emotional chaos? Is he Indecisive in some way? He can't make up his mind what kind of God he should be? No, of course not. None of those things are true. God is perfectly consistent with himself and his character never changes. All of his perfections are infinite. He is who he is and there is no tension between his various attributes. But because there is a complexity to who God is, Sometimes the scripture emphasizes one side of his character and then the other. It's not possible to say everything at once. Even in the scripture, it's not possible to say everything at once. The problem is, sometimes in the church's teaching or sometimes in our beliefs about God, we veer off to one side or the other and we end up up painting a false portrait of who God is. So if you preach a text that shows the fierce judgment of God and the demands that he makes upon us, the righteousness that he demands of us, listeners might realize the horror of their sin and they might be terrified because of it, but will they realize that their sin can be forgiven? They could fall into that ditch of despair because they see the holiness of God, they see that they're sinners, they see the demands of God, but that's all. Or if you preach a text about God's mercy and grace, sure, that might comfort people, but will it lead them to think that how they live doesn't really matter? Will it lead them to view God as a softy, God as morally squishy, God as a pushover, so we can really get away with anything, we can live however we want, do whatever we want. There's really no demand for change because, hey, God's going to forgive it. You can fall into that ditch on the other side. That's not right either. The key is to hold together all of these truths in a way that conforms to God's revelation of himself in Scripture. The key is not balance, as so though we were about splitting the difference, you know, finding the golden mean or something like that. The key is not balance, some abstract notion of balance. No, the key is conformity to the biblical text Conformity to God's revelation of Himself. And that means preaching and teaching the extremes. Because the Bible goes to extremes. Now, here's something that I find really interesting and instructive. We're looking at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30 this morning. That's what we read. Consider this. In verses 28 and 29 of this chapter, you have one of the most gracious and comforting and encouraging passages in all of Scripture. It's just this incredibly gracious invitation. Jesus invites sinners, weighed down, burdened by a sense of their guilt, he invites sinners to come to him and have their burdens relieved, to come to him and find rest. And they can be assured of finding rest because Jesus describes himself as one who is gentle and humble in heart. If you're going to confess your sins, you want it to be to somebody who is gentle and humble, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Come to me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I can forgive you. I can give you rest. That's so gracious. That's amazing grace right there. But right before that, in verses 28 to 24, what is Jesus doing? He is pronouncing the fiercest judgment imaginable. He denounces the cities in Israel he's been doing miracles in. And he says, it will be worse for them than it will be for Sodom on the day of judgment. You know, Sodom, that city that was destroyed with fire from heaven, it's going to be even worse for these cities where I have been ministering. That's what Jesus says as he pronounces curses on those cities. So you have a pronouncement of God's fiercest judgment, the fiercest judgment imaginable, a judgment worse than what fell on Sodom right up next to an invitation characterized by the deepest and most astounding, most astonishing mercy. Both passages, both sets of verses go to the extreme. What I want to do is walk you through this text and hopefully, help you see how both sides of this are necessary if we really want to understand God, if we really want to understand Jesus. Both sides, both extremes are necessary if we really want to understand what God is doing, what he will do. We want to understand the gospel. So Jesus begins in verse 20 by pronouncing woes against the cities he's been ministering to because they have rejected him. This is kind of a preview in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus will pronounce a series of woes against the Pharisees who have obviously rejected him. So Jesus pronounces these woes, and then he compares their fate to the pagan cities of old. He speaks here of Tyre and Sidon. These were ancient Canaanite cities. At one point in the history of Tyre, Tyre actually became a godly city. It allied itself with Israel. Hiram, the king of Tyre, at one point in the city's history, befriended Solomon and helped him to build the temple. And he blessed Yahweh, the God of Israel. But later, Tyre fell away and went back to the Canaanite gods. And so the prophets condemned the city in no uncertainty. Terms. In fact, some of the harshest denunciations, some of those harshest judgment passages you find in the Old Testament are aimed at Tyre. Now, Sodom here is also mentioned. Sodom, of course, is the ancient sin city. Sodom was a place full of, of sexual perversion. In fact, we name certain forms of sexual perversion after the city of Sodom. It was also a city known for its abuse of the poor. There are a multitude of sins being committed in the city of Sodom, a very wicked city. And so what happened, you may remember this, I won't go into all the details, but Abraham prays for the city because Lot, his relative, is there. Ultimately, there are not enough righteous people in the city for it to be spared. And so the city will be destroyed. And it was destroyed when God rained down fire from heaven. And of course, the destruction of Sodom becomes the archetype for divine judgment. So then later on, whenever the prophets threaten judgment on Israel, they will very often give the warning by pointing back to Sodom and say, you will receive the same treatment as Sodom if you don't repent. Fire falling from heaven, wrath being poured out from heaven. But now Jesus says there is a worse judgment than the judgment Sodom received. There is a worse judgment, a harsher judgment, coming. You might think, well, what could be worse? Jesus here is speaking of the Galilean cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he says they will face an even harsher judgment than Sodom. Jesus pronounces these woes over these cities. And of course, that word woe, that describes a curse. He's pronouncing a curse on these cities. Why the harsher judgment Of course, it's because of what these cities have received. These cities in Galilee have received benefits and blessings far greater than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Jesus, God incarnate, has walked their streets. He has performed miracles in their sight. He has taught them within earshot. But what have they done? They rejected Him and they drove Him out of town. And Jesus says, if he had done the same mighty works in Sodom that he did in these cities, the people of Sodom would have repented in sackcloth and ash. Instead, as verse 23 says, because they have arrogantly exalted themselves, because they've been too prideful to receive Jesus, too prideful to see their need for Jesus, because they have exalted themselves, they will be brought down to hell. They have received more light, but they have closed their eyes to that light. They have preferred the darkness to the light. They have greater culpability, and so they will face greater judgment. Jesus has been doing great works of healing, raising the dead, driving out demons in these cities. It's like he's been going around these cities spreading the blessings of his kingdom. He's been going around these cities, restoring the land to Edenic perfection, like he's bringing back the Garden of Eden, but perfected everywhere he goes, everything he touches. There's this blessing that follows in his train, and yet how do they respond? Their hearts are as hard as stone. And I would say this ought to be a warning to every city that has a gospel ministry in its midst, including our own city of Birmingham. There's no question Jesus has his ministry here in the city of Birmingham. You can hear the voice of Jesus in many churches throughout this city. Every Lord's Day, just like today, Jesus ministers and does great things in the city of Birmingham. And yet if the city of Birmingham does not repent, well, what will happen? Judgment like what is described here. God threatens terrible things to those who have contact with the ministry of Jesus through his church who refuse to repent. That's really, really clear. This is a warning to cities and towns and villages everywhere. That if Jesus is in your midst through his means of grace, through his word and his sacraments, you best listen, you best heed his word and repent. There is a warning here. But then, after giving this warning, and after pronouncing the fiercest imaginable judgment on these cities, what does Jesus do? Jesus turns to his Father in prayer. And we get to hear the incarnate Son offering praise to his heavenly Father. That's verses 25 to 27. And then that leads into the gracious invitation that he gives. A gracious invitation to escape the coming judgment. To to flee the wrath to come. He gives an invitation. Now, let's talk about the prayer here for just a minute. Several aspects of this prayer stand out. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. The Son thanks the Father. It addresses the Father as Lord over heaven and earth. And really the whole prayer is about God's sovereignty. And it it is especially about God's sovereignty in salvation. As God hides truth from the arrogant obviously those who are wise in their own eyes. That's what it means for them to be wise here. They're wise in their own eyes. They rely on worldly wisdom. But it speaks of God revealing himself to little children, to babes. The word can even describe infants. Now when it speaks of of infants here or little children, that might be metaphorical. Think of Jesus in Matthew 18 where he says we have to humble ourselves like little children. We have to recognize our utter dependence upon grace if we're going to enter the kingdom. But that metaphor only makes sense if it can be literally true. And so Jesus is indicating here that covenant infants, even in the womb, can be given a revelation of the knowledge of God. And this is something the scripture shows us again and again. Think of Psalm 22. Again, that's why we need to sing the Psalms, because you get things like this. Psalm 22, David sings, you were my God from the womb. He points back to when he was still in his mother's belly and says, even there you were my God. I knew you and trusted in you. Or John the Baptist, who leapt with joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb when she got near to Mary, who had Jesus in her womb. And so John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. Our children, if you think about what Jesus is saying about how God reveals himself and to whom he reveals himself, our children are the rule, not the exception. So the wise and educated, like, say, the Pharisees, who are too proud to receive Jesus' teaching, who are too proud to receive the kingdom. These truths remain hidden from them. Now, Jesus is not saying it's, it's wrong or bad to be educated, but he is saying it's, it's going to be wrong or bad to be educated if it makes you arrogant, if your knowledge puffs you up. Knowledge, pursued in humility can be a great thing, a glorious thing, a helpful thing. But when knowledge becomes a source of pride, it hardens our hearts against the revelation of God, and these truths are hidden from us. So the wise and the educated, like the Pharisees, they're too proud to receive the kingdom. It remains hidden from them because they think they've got it all figured out on their own, while those who have childlike humility receive it. It is given to them. We come to Jesus as children because he came to us as a child. He came in humility to us. We must come in humility to him. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 26 affirms the father hides and reveals the truth according to his good pleasure. Again, that's confessing the father's sovereignty. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, all authority has been given to him. In other words, even as the father is Lord over heaven and earth, Jesus is as well. Jesus is one with the Father, equal to the Father. He also has absolute sovereign lordship over all things. He shares in the Father's sovereign rule over all things. So this is an indication that one standing there in their midst is somehow God in the flesh. And then he delves into the high mystery of the Trinity. The inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. So get this, in Jesus' prayer, he moves from the high mystery of God's predestination and God's sovereign will to the high mystery of the Trinity. And it's really this part of the prayer that I want to call your attention to. This is what you really need To grasp, Because really, I think this part of the prayer can serve as a bridge between Christ pronouncing a harsh judgment on the cities that have rejected him and his gracious invitation to the burden and heavy laden to come to him and find rest. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I would say that this statement, this one verse, is really the heart of the Christian message. It is really the heartbeat of the Christian gospel. It's right at the heart of God's revelation of himself. This one verse, tucked away in Matthew 11, in a prayer of Jesus to his Father, is really, in a way, the clue to everything. But it's really important to understand why, what's going on here. If you take this heart out this verse out, you really kill the gospel. What this one verse does is it shows us who God is, and it also shows us the way of salvation. It shows us there is one way of salvation. There aren't many paths to God. There aren't many ways to salvation. There is one path to God, one way of salvation. The one and only way to salvation is Christ. That's what he's showing us here. The one and only pathway to the Father, the one and only pathway to eternal life is Jesus himself. And so really you could say this one statement, is not just a Trinitarian statement that gives us a, a, a hint, a clue to the mystery of the Trinity. This statement also teaches salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. It is the gospel In one verse. It shows us that all we could ever need or want we have in Christ Jesus. He is a complete Savior. But we've got to unpack this carefully if we really want to see what's going on here. Look at the first part of what Jesus says. I'm going to leave off the end part of the verse. Just read you the first part. I want you to consider this. What Jesus says at the beginning. No one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son. Stop there. Leave off that last little part of the verse and just consider this for a moment. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. That makes it sound like the Father and the Son have an exclusive and private knowledge of one another, and no one else shares in that knowledge. It's an indication that from all eternity, the Father and the Son have known one another. From all eternity, the Father and the Son have loved one another and lavished glory on one another. From all all eternity, the Father and the Son have been one, sharing a common life through the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son know one another in the fullness of what knowing means in the Scripture. That, that, That intimacy, that love, that oneness, they know each other. They alone know each other through the Holy Spirit. You take that part of the statement, that part of the verse, and you can say, no one knows God except God. No one knows God except God Himself. No one knows God except God Himself within the Trinity. If we stop there, all knowledge of God is contained within God Himself. All knowledge of God is intertrinitarian knowledge. You might say knowledge of God according to this part of the verse, is a family secret. A family secret between father and son. A well-guarded family secret. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son. And if it stayed that way, if that was the end of it, if you had to put a big period right there at the end, and that's where it stops, well, then that would be really bad news for us. Because John 17, 3 says this is eternal life to know God the Father and His Son Jesus. The only way to have eternal life or the very essence of eternal life is knowing God the Father in and through His Son Jesus. Eternal life is knowing the triune God, knowing the Father through the Son, sharing in the triune life of God, the triune knowledge that God has of Himself. That's what salvation is. That's what eternal life is. So if no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and that's it, you put the period there, that's the end of it, there is no eternal life for any of us. And that is why the end of Matthew 11, verse 27, is everything. It is the gospel. It is the very heartbeat of the gospel. Listen again to what Jesus says, now the full verse. No one knows the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And, that and is everything. Everything hinges on that and. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Which is to say, there is a way in. Jesus has opened up a way into the very life of God for us. He's opened up a way for us to know the Father through Himself. The Son lets us in on the family secret. He gives us knowledge of the Father by giving us knowledge of Himself in revealing Himself and giving Himself to us. He gives the Father to us. He reveals the Father to us as well. How do we come to know the true and living God? How do we come to have life? Life eternal, life abundant. It's in Jesus, God's Son. It's in Christ alone because He brings us to the Father. He brings us into That triune circle of love and joy. He is our way into the life of God. Think about what he says in John 14, 6. It's really stating the same truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is our everything. And he gives us everything God has to give us. He gives us the Father. He makes us sharers in the divine life. This life of love and glory and peace and joy. He brings us into the triune circle of life. The triune fellowship. Through Jesus we have peace and joy and blessing. We have forgiveness. Through Jesus we are loved and loved perfectly. The Father lavishes the same love on us. He has been lavishing on his Son from all eternity. We are brought into the very life of God through Jesus. Through Jesus, God lives in us. And through Jesus, we live in God. And now you can see why Jesus goes straight from stating this glorious truth to the gracious invitation in verse 28. When Jesus issues this invitation, what is he doing? He is inviting us to share in the knowledge of the Father, to share in the love of the Father. We come to know the Father as the Son reveals him. And so the son says, come, come to me, come to me and find the father. Come to me and enter into the very life and love of God. Come to me and escape the coming wrath. Escape the woes pronounced on the unrepentant cities. Escape the judgment that will fall on the cities of Galilee. This harsher judgment, this worse judgment, even than the judgment that befell Sodom. Come to me and escape the wrath to come. Come to me and enter into the very life and love of the triune God. Announcing this just judgment of God is followed by announcing this most gracious invitation into the life of God. Jesus preaches the extremes. Jesus ratchets up the fear, pronouncing woes and talking about a harsher judgment than what fell on Sodom. He ratchets up the fear, and then he gives the the best and most ultimate form of relief possible. What is he doing here? He shows them they are trapped, those people listening to him and us today. He, he, He shows us we're trapped, and then he gives us a way out. He shows us judgment is going to fall, and then he shows us the way to escape it. Jesus preaches the extremes, extreme judgment followed by extreme grace that we are invited into. We escape God's wrath by coming to God's Son. We flee God's wrath and find God's love by coming to Jesus. That is his invitation. And I have to tell you, that is as good and as glorious as it gets. And you will not find this anywhere else. No other system, no other religion, no other philosophy or worldview has anything like this. It's only going to be found in Jesus. It's only going to be found in Jesus. It is in Christ alone, by grace alone. This is what we mean when we say salvation is in Christ alone and by grace alone. But there's one more thing I want you to see here. One more thing we need to say. This invitation contains, contains some very important truths that help us understand what it means to have the Son reveal the Father to us. What it means to come to the Father through The son, and we're not going to look at all of it, I'll come back in in a couple of weeks and talk about the end part where Jesus goes on to talk about his yoke being light and easy. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But I do want you to see something here that he gives as a key qualifier to his invitation. Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. Who is Invited, who is this invitation issued to? Those who are under a burden, those who are heavy laden. Jesus issues this invitation to those who are burdened in some kind of way. Now, what is that burden? Well, it could be many things. We all carry many burdens. It could be money burdens or relationship burdens. It could be sickness burdens, any of those stresses of life that afflict us that burden us. Those are included here, I would say, and ultimately Jesus can give us rest from all of them. But in context, there's one burden in particular that is in view. It is especially the burden of sin and guilt. In context, this is clearly what Jesus has in view. See, what is the burden? It is knowing that you deserve woe and wrath and judgment. It is knowing that you deserve fire from heaven. That's the burden. And Jesus says, when you know that's your burden, then come to me and I will take that burden away. I will relieve you of that burden. I will give you rest. You will find relief from that burden when you come to Jesus. And then love from heaven will be rained down upon you rather than wrath from heaven raining down upon you. Instead of having wrath fall on you from heaven, love from heaven will fall on you when you come to Jesus. Jesus here promises rest, and that's really interesting. It's interesting that this passage in Matthew 11, if you, if you ignore the, the chapter breaks, it flows right into a, a passage about the Sabbath, which of course is all about rest, a controversy over Sabbath rest. So these things are connected So, if Jesus is talking about rest, and this is in some way connected to the Sabbath, what's going on here? What does it mean? Well, the Sabbath is established at the end of the creation week in Genesis. You have the six days of creation, where God forms and fills the heavens and earth, and then you have, on the seventh day, you have Sabbath rest. God blessed the Sabbath. God kept the Sabbath holy, declared it holy, at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Man enjoyed Sabbath rest and blessing in the beginning. Sabbath is all about knowing and communing with God. It is about entering into God's love and peace, celebrating God's good and wise rule over all things. The Sabbath was the time and the recognition of God's enthronement over his creation. To enjoy Sabbath, Sabbath rest is all about celebrating God's good and wise and righteous rule over the creation, entering into his love, his peace, and his joy. Now think about this, how the Sabbath worked for Adam. Adam was created on day six of the creation week, which means his first full day was day seven, the Sabbath. So Adam started his week with Sabbath rest. He had Sabbath. He had rest, he had communion and fellowship with God, he could enjoy the the reign of God and the love of God and the peace of God. But when Adam fell into sin, the Sabbath and the rest that comes with it and that whole package of blessings that the Sabbath included, all of that was lost when Adam fell into sin. When the Sabbath was reinstituted, when God reinstituted the Sabbath for Israel later in history, he did so as the seventh day of the week. For Adam, it was the first day of the week. For Israel, it is the seventh day of the week because the restoration of Sabbath, life, and joy is something Israel will have to look forward to. It's something they'll have to anticipate happening in history. Adam had it and lost it. Israel's been promised it and now has to look forward to it. So when Jesus says, I will give you rest, what is he doing? He's saying that promised Sabbath rest, that promised celebration of God's rule, God's reign, that promised joy and peace, that shalom that the prophets promised you, it is now here. And that is why for us as Christians, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day as we call it, is once again the first day Of the week, because we can enjoy rest in Jesus. His kingdom is here; it's broken into history. We have all that the Sabbath symbolized in Him. He fulfills the Sabbath; it's ours now. These blessings, this rest. The Sabbath, of course, was also connected to the Promised Land. Joshua, we read in the book of Joshua. Joshua gave the people rest by bringing them into the land of promise which was a kind of restored and renewed Garden of Eden, a sanctuary land where God would dwell in the midst of his people. There was a kind of rest involved in that, a shadow rest. But when Jesus says, I will give you rest, he's saying, one greater than Joshua is he. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. He came to restore and perfect his creation, which means he will judge and conquer his enemies because there can't be Sabbath without that, but he will also give love and joy and peace and refreshment to his people. He brings in the kingdom of God, and that kingdom brings with it rest and Sabbath blessing. So if you are burdened, if you are weighed down, with a sense of your sin and the horror of God's judgment, if you are burdened by the wrath and judgment you know you so justly deserve, Jesus is saying, come to me and find rest for your souls. He's inviting us into his rest, into his peace, into his joy. Don't be like the Israelites of old. Jesus actually here is echoing Jeremiah chapter 6. In Jeremiah 6, the Lord says that if the Israelites will stand in the ancient paths and walk in the good way, they will find rest for their souls. A shadow of this rest was available to them. But Jeremiah 6 goes on to describe the people. They say, we will not walk in it. They resisted God's invitation to enter His rest. Instead, I would say, be like the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, who is a model for every disciple. The sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, she seems to be exactly the kind of person Jesus has in mind. She is a sinner and she knows that she is burdened and heavy laden. She can never measure up to what the scribes and the Pharisees demand of her. She needs rest, she needs renewal, she needs forgiveness. She is burned by her sin, and she's heard enough of Jesus to know He can give her rest. And so what does she do? She breaks in on Jesus as he's having a dinner party with a Pharisee, and she anoints his feet, she washes Jesus' feet. And what happens? She found Jesus to be meek and gentle, and she found forgiveness and new life. She was burned and heavy laden, and she found Rest And Jesus even tells a a parable, a story, to explain what's happening. Because she knew her sins were great, because she knew how great the burden of her sin really was, when she was forgiven, she was really and truly relieved. Having been forgiven much, she loved much. She found rest in Jesus, the Son of God. That very same rest Jesus gave to that sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, that rest is ours in Christ. What is this passage calling you to do? Don't resist the love of Jesus, rest in the love of Jesus. You know, there are people out there who still think, oh church is just for people who have their act together, I can't go to church, my life is such a mess. No, Jesus says to that very person, if you are burdened by how messy and how messed up your life is, come to me and I will give you rest. Come rest in my love. Come rest in my forgiveness. Rest in the love of the Son and the love of the Father. Rest in their grace, their mercy, their forgiveness. Rest in Jesus, and you have nothing to fear. Rest in Jesus, and He will take all your burdens away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.